Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality. Thanks for joining in today. And we have an awesome guest today. I'm so happy to introduce you, if you don't know him, uh, to Adam Hamilton. Adam is the founding pastor and do you call yourself senior pastor or lead pastor? Yep. Senior pastor. Senior pastor of uh, Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City and actually Leewood, Kansas, technically, right? Or at least actually you have multiple campuses. So yep. you've got footprints all over the Can Kansas City, greater Kansas City area. Sure. And uh, Adam, this is, uh, I think, is this the largest Methodist church in America? It is the largest United Methodist church in the United States. In the United States. He founded this church in 1990. And you were telling me that you're working on your, what, 30th book right now? Something like that. 31, <laughs> 32, I think. I'm not <laughs> Just sure. like, way too where, do you, where do you get all the energy, Adam? That's what I want to know. Yeah. My gosh, crazy. So, but I am so honored to have you as a guest and I'm honored to, to call you a, certainly a colleague and appreciate that we've tracked together for, for almost well, 30 years, almost yeah. really. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, for those who uh, don't know much about you, um, why don't you just share like you, where did you grow up? Give us a little snapshot of your, uh, growing up years Sure. And uh, how you came to be a pastor. All right. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me on your program today, Fred. I've appreciated you. You and I have known each other for a number of years, and uh, we were we ran really parallel tracks. You in the North Kansas City area and me on the south side. And, and really, our stories, our faith stories are so similar, too, in terms of when we met Christ, how we, you know, how we saw the world. When, when, uh, when you speak, so many of the things that, that are going through your brain are the, thing, are the ways that I think as well. And so, I appreciate that about you and appreciate your heart. And um, so, thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. And uh, my um, blessing. Uh, you know, folks who are listening wouldn't know, but, you know, I'd, uh, I'd had a chance to go speak at your congregation up in the North, Northland. And again, just had a great appreciation for, have a great appreciation for who you are. So thank you. Yeah. And I, I, go ahead. Well, I was thinking in the nineties, even I had you, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I had, I did a, a little conference on outward focus church yep. and we had you and Doug Murin and Steve Shogren and myself yep. speak. That was our yeah. lineup. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Was fun. Anyway. Good guys. Was fun. Yep. Well, I grew up in Kansas city too. I, uh, uh, my folks were from the Kansas city area. They were in high school, uh, at Shawnee mission East. And it was their, um, I think it was their junior year in high school when they were at an unsupervised party in Leewood, Kansas. And, uh, and nine months later, I was born. So they dropped out of high school to have me and, and uh, got married. And my dad was Catholic. My mom was Church of Christ. Got married in the Catholic Church, moved out to Tucson, Arizona. And I was born, I think, seven months after they got married or six, seven months after they got married. And uh, that so I spent a little bit of time in Tucson, a couple of years there. Then my folks moved to uh, Wichita, um, is that right? Yeah. They moved to Wichita and then they moved, my dad went to work for Boeing and then they moved to Seattle, Washington. And, uh, and then finally moved back to Kansas city when I was in first grade. So uh, I would come back regularly to visit my grandparents and, but it was in first grade, we moved back to Prairie village and I lived there until I was in eighth grade, eighth grade moved. My folks got divorced in seventh grade, eighth grade to Lenexa, Kansas, uh, out by uh, Shawnee mission or actually out by, uh, Oak Park Mall, not far from there. And then uh, in ninth grade, my mom and stepdad moved to, uh, you know, way out into the country uh, to an area called Blue Valley. And at the time it was really, it was the Southern part of Johnson County and uh, moved out there. And, and when I had, you know, similar to your story, I think when I was in probably eighth grade, I began experimenting with drugs, uh, you know, drinking uh, the stuff that a lot of kids were doing at that time. And, mm -hmm. uh, 
And so as a freshman in high school, uh, we just moved into this house. There was no sod on the ground, yet on the ground yet. And, uh, and we had a guy came knocking on doors and he just knocked on our door and invited me to come to church. Uh, I, at that point I would have told you I was an atheist and uh, his invitation somehow really I, it just stuck with me. This guy, his, his vocal cords had been removed and he spoke with what looked like a microphone pressed to his throat. His name was Harold Thorson and he wasn't a pastor. He was just going door to door, inviting people to the church. He went to a little Pentecostal church. And, um, you know, my mom came home from work that day and said, you know, anything happened today? And I said, well, yeah, this funny sounding guy came and invited us to church. And she said, well, do you want to go? And I think precisely because of his disability, it touched my heart that he would actually talk to me, a 14 year old kid, like I mattered, you know, and <laughs> he didn't try to share the gospel with me on my doorstep or anything. He just gave me, gave me a business card and invited me to come to church. But uh, though I didn't believe in God, I thought, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I guess so. Let's go to church. So we went to church that Sunday. I'd never been to a Pentecostal church before, been to Catholic churches. We went to a Methodist church for about uh, three years when I was in, uh, or maybe four when I was in junior or middle school. Excuse me, elementary school. And uh, so we went to this Pentecostal church and, and it quite honestly, it freaked me out. It was like, what is this? You know, there was the hand raising, tongue speaking, uh, fiery preaching. It was very different from anything I'd ever known before. But there were three really cute girls on the front row of the church. And I thought, well, I don't believe in God and I believe in girls. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so I started going back to church and I married one of those girls four years later and we've been married now. That's so crazy. Years last week. So that's, wow. uh, you know, that, and so I graduated from high school, Blue Valley High School out in the Southland, and my kids graduated from there later, years later, and and uh, became a Christian out there at this little Pentecostal church, began, uh, really became a Christian through reading my Bible, and just started reading the beginning, you know, started in page one, because I'd never read it before, and and somewhere along the way began to think, maybe there is a God, and maybe God is something like this, and got to the Gospel of Luke, and I really, I, I don't know if I would have used these words, but I sort of fell in love with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke when you know, it's the gospel of the nobodies where Jesus cares about the marginalized and the push down and the people made to feel like they don't matter. And I was one of those kids who felt a little that way. And I somehow I got to the end of that gospel and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Hmm. That's awesome. Every time I talk to you, I, I think of another connection. But so I was born in Wichita, Kansas and moved to Prairie Village when I was in uh, kindergarten, first grade. No kidding. So I went to kindergarten at Belinder. And I went to first and then moved and went to first grade. We lived on 70th street between Tomahawk and Rowe. And I went to Prairie elementary school, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. Yeah. I was there too. What uh, you're uh, well, I'm two remember. years older than you, I think. Okay. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was I, there at the same time. I was Somerset elementary school. My parents rented a house and they bought one at 68th and Del Mar. And so, uh, yeah, what's Prairie elementary school. So we were at Prairie together. We were amazing. amazing. That is totally crazy. And then, you know, the other thing we found out was that my, my former wife and I were married on June 5th, 1982. Yeah. This is really bizarre. June 5th, 1982. (laughs) Mine lasted 37 years. You're still going. So uh, crazy. That is wow. Yeah. So that is so fascinating. My dad was a TWA guy. So when TWA moved North in 72, we moved North. And so, my That's grandpa right. was a pilot for TWA. Oh wow! His whole career, yeah. Wow, my yeah. dad probably knows him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably. So. I mean, my dad seems like he knows everybody. You know, amazing. Wow. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> so we're both Kansas City guys. So, what's your? What do you love about Kansas City? Give me like your top couple of things. Yeah, that you love about. You know, I Kansas love City. the. I love the friendliness of the city for one. I think it's a really friendly, warm city in most, you know, most places. Um, I love the fact that it's got the amenities of a larger city, but it's a, you know, it's still is a, you know, mid-sized city. I mean, it's 2 million people in the Metro, but it still doesn't feel like a, you know, it's not a, a huge city. And, uh, but mostly it's the people, I think. I really, I really love the people in Kansas City. And we've, uh, you know, it's home. So I had a chance, I had multiple chances to go serve in other places and other cities. I went to seminary down in Dallas at uh, Southern Methodist university and, uh, had an opportunity and lots of opportunities, but I just really love the city. I love Kansas city. I don't know, you know, it just kind of gets in your system. I think, you know, I, I know people who grew up there and don't love it, but I, to me, I love the people. I love the city. Yeah. That Midwestern ethos is a real thing and very, very hospitable, um, down to earth, you know, 
kind of, uh, yeah, good stuff. So what's the craziest thing you ever did in Kansas city <laughs> that you can talk about? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great question. I don't know. I can't really think of too many crazy. I haven't, I haven't lived a crazy enough life. I don't think I, you know, I think back when I was a kid in high school and uh, you know, doing stupid stuff when I shouldn't have had a driver's license back then you could get a restricted driver's license at 14. And I got my first car a VW bug at 14. And I did some really stupid stuff driving that car in ways that should never have been driven. And I'm very glad I didn't die in the midst yeah. of it. Sorry. But uh, yeah, other than that, how you about survived. you? What's the craziest thing you did in Kansas City? You know, that I can talk about. Um, <laughs> no, I, some of the, some of my teenage, you know, I started smoking pot in eighth grade up in yep. uh, park with the basketball team. You know, I can't speak for all the basketball, but a lot of my basketball buddies and uh, man, we did crazy, crazy stuff. You know, that was a couple of years of crazy. And then I, then I, I, gave my life to Jesus when I was you know, like 16. So mm-hmm. felt called to be a pastor when I was 16. So, but yeah, I, mean, that, you know, that is I had, I had one crazy phase. Yeah. I had one crazy phase called it a prodigal phase. And then, you know, here all these years later, I had a second crazy phase, Adam. That's yep. why I'm not. <laughs> so we won't talk about that crazy. I, I have actually talked about that publicly, but I don't want to go there now. But anyway, yeah, yeah, those are too. Yeah. 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 Those are some of my crazy things. Yep. Um, what's your favorite part of Kansas city's history? Uh, that's a big question, but if you just said to nail maybe yeah. one or one or two things. <clears throat> well, I'm going to, I'll connect uh, Kansas city's history with Methodism for a second. So uh, just because it happens to be my tradition, not because we're any better than anybody else uh, in some ways worse than everybody else. But, uh, but in when Kansas city started the very first uh, church, Protestant church in Kansas city was uh, central, uh, what became central United Methodist church. And it was started in the city of Kansas uh, before Kansas city wasn't, was what it is today. And, uh, and so with the Methodists coming there as um, you know, to, to start a, to begin a, a, you know, gathering a group of people to pursue the Christian faith, they played a key role. Methodists are always interested in both um, what we might call the evangelical gospel and the social gospel where we believe that we're called to follow Christ and that, you know, following of Jesus is meant to work itself out in actions in the community. And so when the first public school started in Kansas City, Missouri, it was started in the basement of Central Methodist Church, uh, or maybe it was Westport Methodist Church. That was the second church to get started. Uh, the, so the public school started in a Methodist church mm. on the side of the state line. The public school started at Shawnee Indian Mission, uh, from which Shawnee Mission is named and Mission Road is named. It was the road to the Methodist Mission. Mm. And so Methodists had this passion for helping people be educated because they believe that education would be a means for them to live out their life from the world. Education was key to that. Then there were hospitals that were started and there were social service, you know, agencies that were started. But, you know, I, that's one of those things that I think um, that that history of, you know, who the city is, Thomas Johnson, after whom Johnson County is named, was a Methodist missionary. And so it's there's just a lot of ethos there. And so, you know, I think that's I think that's interesting. The fact that the city was founded, you know, that half the city is was on the free state side and half the city was still in that sort of area where slavery was allowed um, makes for an interesting dynamic, too. And um, I think our our history and there's a lot of sad things, you know, in Mm -hmm. our history when it comes to race and um, things that I think were, you know, that are healing is starting to happen. You know, it's, it's been happening for decades and I think that's a good thing. Um, so anyway, those are some things I find fascinating just from, you know, my right. own place as a Methodist pastor, how, how integrally involved the church has been in trying to shape the city. The first uh, college started, you know, in, uh, in Kansas was Baker university. And as a Methodist school, K state was started by Methodist uh, UMKC was started in the basement of central Methodist church. And so a lot of fascinating that's kind of great. Puzzle. That's great. Good stuff. One of my favorite, you know, I've always loved uh, nature. I've always loved the West and like the mountain men. I was, I thought I was going to be a mountain man at one time, you know, when I was, yeah. you know, a young teenager. And uh, so I always liked the fact, you know, like they say St. Louis is kind of the end of the East and then Kansas city is kind of the beginning of the West. Yeah. Um, and uh, so like the, it was the, uh, kickoff point for the Oregon trail, Santa Fe trail, California trail, Westward stuff going on there. 
Um, fun stuff. What about, uh, wait, hold on a second. I want to say just yeah. a word about that because there's places where you can still, some people in Kansas city don't realize you can still see the trails from those, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, have yes. you seen those? Yes. Yeah, by Baker University near Baldwin City, there's a park out there where you can, you know, if you get there at the right time of year where the grasses are, are mowed down, you can still see those ruts. And it's, I do think that's, that's just fascinating. And when we designed, so our, our sanctuary at the Leewood campus, which, you know, is this, you know, huge thing that uh, some say looks like a spaceship, but when we, uh, <laughs> not by design, that wasn't the intention, but, but, you know, when we oriented it, we oriented it to the West. And, uh, and part of that was to, was to recognize this idea of the Methodists when they came here were like taking, you know, taking the gospel to the West is what is part of what they were doing. They were also along with a lot of other Christians from the Northeast trying to claim Kansas as a free state. So there were a lot of people. And I think this is really fascinating that people relocated from Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania to Kansas, the prairie solely based on their belief that God was calling them to do that so that they could claim Kansas for uh, as a free state. So the slave slaves wouldn't be held there. I mean, I just think what a mission that these people had their sense of the gospel is so much broader than just go tell other people about Jesus. It was, it was, you know, we're supposed to make a difference. And if we can, if we can, by moving up, uprooting our family, taking a wagon to Kansas, we can help that be a safe territory where people are free. Yeah. And we're going to do that. I just think that's a pretty, you know, that's, that's an interesting part of our history. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and one of the things I was going to ask you is like, if you could, if there's something you could change, what would it be? And uh, I, I almost guess it's probably along some of those lines. Cause we still have such huge divisions and we really you know, do even in the, the district, you know, the, the neighborhoods and, you know, the poverty areas and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Kansas city a few years ago was the, a few years ago, Kansas city was the 13th most racially segregated major American city. Yeah. And it may even be more than that, you know, higher up that list now, 10th or something. And that's something since we started the church, you know, our, one of the things we talked about is how do we break down the racial mm-hmm. barriers in our city and how do we build bridges? And, you know, we've, we've made fits and starts, you know, at trying to do that. We have a, you know, I, I'm proud of some of the things we've done, but you still find, that those walls are really hard to bring down. Yeah. You know, we are truce is a, is a pretty yes. strong providing line. And, right. um, and my dream and hope would be <clears throat> somebody asked me this same kind of question a few years ago. And I said, I'd love to know when I die that Kansas city looked, uh, that was Kansas city was racially, you know, uh, integrated in terms of its neighborhoods, its communities, its, you know, economics in every way mm-hmm. that our city looked more like the kingdom of God than it does today. And that's yeah. one key area. Me, I'm with you. And I've had that same heart and passion. I even, you know, even now, since I'm not pastoring, I attend uh, the largest African-American church in Kansas City, Missouri right now. And uh, it's just been just intentionally, you know, to yeah. just to still keep that going and uh, still keep the networking going that I have in the urban core. Yep. Yeah. Well, let's jump out a little bit and talk about America, the spiritual landscape of America. And what I'm thinking here in particular, maybe is not the whole 200 plus histories, but maybe like the last 50 years, um, particularly as we think about the de-churching of America. Let's let's spend just just a few minutes on kind of that that whole trend that's been going on in America for decades now, like almost every state, almost county by county, you know, yeah. de-churching of America. Yeah. Yeah. So you may have seen this, Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about how, you know, the number of people who are actively members of congregations dropped below 50% for the first time. And since they were tracking that uh, number, at least in in modern history. So I was going back to look to see what did it look like over the course of our country? And there's a, I don't remember it's Gallup or somebody's put together this chart to show and, you know, we were way more unchurched back in the early to mid 1800s than we are today. So we were more church today, but we're way down con- compared with where we were in the 1950s. And it's an interesting yeah, and there's been a shift, you know, so we went from mainline churches being the predominant, uh, you know, the seven sisters of the mainline, you know, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, uh, Congregationalists. Uh, I'm forgetting one of them. I can't remember who it is, but um, 
Baptist. Not Baptist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're talking mainline. Yeah, yeah. Mainline. Although American yeah. Baptists are, are pretty much mainline. But, yeah. um, but you know, you move, you watch that shift happen in the 60s. So in the 50s, the mainline church, the United Methodist Church was the largest Protestant denomination in America in 1968. And, and the Southern, you know, but it had already been in decline. And the uh, Southern Baptist you know, began to surpass that by 1980, I think, or something. It was larger, maybe late 70s. And part of that was starting lots of churches. And part of it was a reaction to the, I think, probably the 60s and 70s. So you have a reaction to the, you know, the cultural movements to the left, uh, led people looking, you know, more towards the right. And there is this pendulum that swings, you know, throughout history, this Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that that you can find reactions, you know, uh, constantly going, you know, the pendulum going back and forth. So I think that's part of what happened in the, you know, there's multiple factors that were involved in the decline of the mainline. One of them was that the reaction to the, to a more progressive bent in some of those churches. Part of it was a, the fact that Methodist stopped and mainline churches stopped starting new churches. So they kind of lost that evangelical fervor for starting new faith communities where people are moving to, whereas the Baptist and non-denominational evangelical churches really picked that up and they started churches all over the place. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, your, your church is an, was an example of that in the North. You know, I had a more evangelical bent in the South and started resurrection in the Methodist mm-hmm. church, but that was, that was kind of unusual. There was birth control and the fact that lots of uh, mainline churches embraced birth control. And yet uh, both Catholics and more conservative Protestants didn't were a little late to the game to embrace birth control. And so that had something to do with the <laughs> aging of our, of our communities. Um, you know, we weren't growing the fun way anymore. We were growing, you know, <laughs> and we weren't evangelically reaching out to people. Then we were we were not growing. So I think those are all pieces of that uh, puzzle. But today, what we find is the Southern Baptist Church is declining faster than the mainline churches are declining. They're losing. Isn't that money. interesting? It's fascinating. That's just that's only happened in the last like decade, right? The last ten yeah. years. Yeah, and uh, and that tells us something about a shift in and you know again that pendulum kind of swimming mm-hmm. swinging. Mm-hmm. Uh, churches, charismatic Pentecostal churches, um, it's masked sometimes, and and because a lot of folks don't take attendance. You know, we take attendance every, everything we do here and we have people sign in a log, you know, we know every Sunday somebody's there, but so, so there's that. And then there's this, that part of that pendulum is the larger cultural shift. It's away from, um, it's away from a whole host of things that have been characterized that, that characterize some of the more evangelical and conservative churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a shift on how we look at inclusion and LGBTQ people for younger people, younger adults, it's a shift on away from a kind of, and part of this is the more conservative movements, you know, there's some, some real mistakes there, I think, including a, a way of sort of looking at sciences. <clears throat> Science is kind of the enemy. This goes all the way back to the, you know, uh, scopes monkey trial and sure. evolution, but uh, looking, believing that we, that someone has to take a very literal reading of scripture. I think you know, an increasing number of people find that problematic. So you've got, mm-hmm. you've got a large number of people in America who don't believe in evolution and believe that the earth was created in the last 10,000 years and humans were created fully formed, which is, which is just almost impossible for somebody who's a mainstream scientist. And what's, I would say literally impossible. And so you have this, you have this sort of the dominant picture of Christianity in the eighties. So many of the folks in that movement find themselves at odds with, thoughtful people today. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's a lot of other questions. You know, we live in a world where we're meeting people who are of different religions. We have school teachers who are, or our doctors or <clears throat> Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims or, and the world has gotten so much smaller and it becomes harder to, um, to, you know, imagine being in a church where you're going to talk about my neighbor as somebody who's going to burn in hell for all eternity. And so there's just a whole lot of those kind of things that have led to a, a shift in, away from those more conservative evangelical churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, you know, there's still a lot of vibrant churches like that, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, there's been a shift away and the churches that are there that could be perfectly poised to reach those people are mainline churches. It's just that they've kind of forgotten how to do it. <laughs> you know, they've, yes. you've, you've got a lot of churches and the, and the worship may not be very dynamic. The preaching may not be great. The uh, churches, you know, you go in and you feel like everybody in there is much older and it's, you know, and you, you know, if you're in your twenties or thirties, you may not feel like that's a place for you either. So it's, it's a challenge. There's a need for a new kind of church. And, uh, yeah. as, uh, 
Brian McLaren talked about a new kind of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, man, we, I, I might refer people to our conversation that we had on Timmy Gibson's show a yeah. couple of weeks ago. Uh, people might be listening now and, and not, and miss that, but there's a, uh, one of Adam's friends, my friend now is a guy named Timmy Gibson. He has a podcast called Timmy Gibson show. And we spoke about the Bible and some of these issues uh, on that podcast. And yeah, I agree with you. And you know, the, you know, the rise of the mega church while the mainline was declining and that, you know, the mega churches have gotten so much attention. You and I, you know, I pastored a mega church. I didn't start. I started with five people and I grew right. really slowly, you know, like mm-hmm. I wouldn't have hit mega church until sometime after nine 11. And I started in 1990. Right. But, um, but we just kept growing and growing every year. And, you know, soon enough, there's this, so the, so the mega church is kind of not, and they get a lot of attention. A lot of them are evangelical. Right. But um, it, it's, it, they've also come under a heavy critique, you know, and, uh, and they have their own unique challenges. They have their, uh, you know, there's some up, big ups and there's some, there's some challenges as well with the whole mega church world. And, and people don't realize that the mega churches are only a fraction of the churches in America. When you just look at, say, if there's like 350,000 churches in America, I don't know how many there are, but somewhere in there, you know, it's only, it's less than 1%. It's like 1%. Yeah, I don't remember how many churches there are of that size. I think it's a little it's, over 2,000. It's less than, I think it's yeah. less than 1% of the churches are actually mega churches. That's they get right. a, churches also are not monolithic. I mean, they are, you've got you have mega churches that are all over the map. You've got yeah. churches that are prosperity gospel churches, a lot of them that are out there that are, mm-hmm. you know, their theology is, you know, very different from, say, you know, the mega church you led or, you know, Church of the Resurrection. And I don't even like the term mega church because there's so yeah. many so many connotations that go with that. And I don't, I, I think the same was probably true with you. We didn't start off to go, let's go build a mega church. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I'd never even been to a mega church. I, I, you know, I, uh, the biggest church I'd ever been to I had 300 people a Sunday in worship. And so, you know, where I started was I, I want to do the best job we can of welcoming people. I want to welcome yeah. that people are welcomed here and that they feel loved and that here they're finding a faith that's vital. And then I want to turn them inside out. So they're going to go serve God in the community and help transform our city. So it looks like the kingdom of God, Jesus talked about. And, and, uh, but one of the things we said was, we're not going to turn people away. We're going to do whatever it takes to welcome people. And so when we had one worship service in the little funeral home chapel that we started in, and it was, you know, it was, you know, all of a sudden there was no more room. We said, well, we're going to start a second service. And I remember our people like, well, we can't, Jesus didn't call us to build the Christian version of cheers where everybody knows your name. He called us to welcome people and to love people. So, you know, so we, uh, we kept trying to, you know, we do whatever it took. So we went from two services to three to four to five. And, you know, we told people don't invite your friends who go to church somewhere else because this church isn't for them have them stay at their churches. You know, I mean, not that we're, you know, we don't, we wouldn't welcome them, but we're a church to try to reach thinking people who don't go to church somewhere else. And, and, uh, and so, you know, and we outgrew one building, we built another one and another one, but the goal was, we're never going to turn people away. We're not going to say, well, we're just going to stay this small and then hope, you know, nobody else comes, but we're going to do whatever it takes to welcome people. And we're going to try relentlessly to help, you know, people who maybe aren't involved in church to go, you can be a smart person and you can have integrity and you can find, and you can be a part of a church. And, and part of what we said is, you know, when you get, when you get to a certain size, there's, there's pluses and negatives for every size church. There's some mm-hmm. beautiful things about being in a small church and there's some great things about being in a big church. You know, you can do things that no other church can do. You can offer unique programs. You can do things to reach unique segments, whether it's special needs children or whether it's, whether it's serving with support groups for, you know, almost anything that you can imagine or, you know, and, and when you look at, you know, a small church, you might think, I mean, in a lot of Methodist churches, about 90% of the budget goes to pay the pastor's salary, you know, and at resurrection, a tiny, tiny fraction pays the pastor's salary. It's all, you know, we're giving away millions of dollars every year and serving, you know, the community. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of stuff you can do when you've got larger numbers that you can't right. do when you're small. And I don't know how you felt, but when I was, when we reached, well, when we had probably 120 to 150 people a weekend of worship, I felt like a failure as a pastor because I couldn't keep up with everybody. I couldn't, right. I, I couldn't do my job and also be there for everybody all the time. And so it's, it's amazing how small you 
overwhelmed. But, you know, today we have a team of, you know, lay volunteer ministers that are like 150 of them that are, you know, calling on people and caring for them. They're specially trained. And then we've got all these great pastors and staff people who are doing amazing work. And, and so, you know, and I, I used to tell people, uh, I don't know where I heard it. Maybe you've heard this. You probably shared this too, but <clears throat> if you don't like a big church, you're going to hate heaven. He's going to have a ton of people there. You know, Jesus is feeding the thousands, you know, when he's, when he's uh, teaching and, and multiplying the fish and the loaves. And so, so there's a way to do large church well, and there's a way to do it that lacks integrity. And, uh, and so our hope, you know, your hope and my hope was to try to do it well. And at the same time, every church has its shortcomings. You know, there are places where people get hurt in churches. There are places where, um, where churches miss the mark. And, and um, that's true, whether you're a church of 12 a Sunday or, you know, you're a church of 12,000 a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. When I hit about 200, I went through that thing where I felt so guilty all the time because I felt I'm disappointing more people than I'm helping. And it was yes. kind of like a bit of a crisis for me. And I yep. had to kind of make some shifts there in terms of, you know, not being direct care, but empowering people to like you're talking about empowering yeah. more people to care and be shepherds and ministers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, well, so, um, so it's interesting. So Kansas city, you know, is such an interesting place. Like you, you gave some of the Methodist history and I don't really want to dive into any of this, but you know, you've got, I think the headquarters of unity is here in Kansas city. Right. Um, RLDS's headquarters are here. Yep. Or in independence, independence is yep. part of the greater Kansas city area. Yeah. Now I think they're called community of Christ. Community uh, of Christ. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I think Joseph Smith prophesied that Jesus was going to come back at independence. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, the Muslims think it's going to be Jerusalem where Jesus comes back. Right. But Joseph Smith said uh, independence. Yeah. <laughs> Who to thunk? Exactly. Right. <laughs> So we're close, you know, I'm in Kansas city North. You're down in Leewood, right? No, you're out at the lake anyway. So <laughs> you're at the lake right now. Yeah. You're going to miss it. All right. So anyway, no, but uh, it's an interesting city. Um, you know, we, we just had up in the Northland, a, a, a new Mormon temple built up here a few years ago. And right. uh, I, man, I have never, when I got on social media, I had never, I, I, I just, they have so many missionaries up here now that uh, are on my social media thing. It's so fascinating. Really? Yeah. 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 Um, very active community. And so, you know, and then every faith tradition is represented across our city. You know, I remember after nine 11, me and Steve Shogren went down to uh, the, a local mosque in Kansas city and offered to serve them and, mm. and uh, just clean the building and stuff right That's after awesome. nine, right after nine 11. And That's uh, right. We were, we, we, we had people in tears just because we showed up. They thought we were going to bomb the place, I think. And yeah. we showed up to was, show God's love in practical ways. I love that. That was, that is such a beautiful uh, sign of, and we've, I, I didn't think to do that after nine 11. I wished I had, I did reach out to some of the, uh, some of the Muslim community, but we've tried the same thing to try to have a, a relationship where, our Muslim friends knew that, you know, we were in their corner, that if somebody harassed them, if there, you know, several years ago, there was a mosque in, in the Southern part of the city that uh, somebody sprayed spray paint on their, you know, on their sign or something. And, you know, I showed up there for their Friday prayers and just said, Hey, I just want you to know, you know, I'm your neighbor and we're your neighbors. And Jesus told us to love our neighbors and we, we love you. And, you know, that kind of thing. I wish there was more people doing that. I love that you guys did that right after nine 11. That yeah. was a hard time to, yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it was funny. I had, Steve was tired, worn out. And I said, what do you what do you want to do? You've got about, you know, a few hours to take a break. I mean, literally, this was weeks after 9-11. And yeah. and his wife was with him, Janie. And he goes, well, let's let's go. Let's go find the closest mosque and offer to just clean their bathrooms and their their mosque and all that kind of stuff. So we literally went down and did that. That's took awesome. A, took a, took a janitorial cleaning kit with us. Yep. They wouldn't let us, they Go wouldn't ahead. let us do it. They, uh, they told us that we had to, uh, that they had to serve us and they were, wow. they were having a conference and they stopped their conference, hosted us, offered us things, gave us a tour. 
Wow. And afterwards the guy, they were, they're in tears. Like they said, mm-hmm. the Quran says that Christians have a kind place in their heart. And we've seen that today. And there were just people in tears. It was just That's a beautiful, awesome. beautiful thing. That's one of the things Steve Shogren, I appreciated about his approach to, to ministry was that was his thing was taking, was going out and cleaning toilets and yeah. stuff and walls and whatever, wasn't it? <laughs> he still is. Yeah. That's yeah. really, that's uh, yeah, he's still doing it. Uh, Some of your uh, listeners may not know who that is, but I he know. was, uh, he was the uh, pastor, founding pastor of, was it Cincinnati Vineyard? Yes. Yeah. Cincinnati Vineyard. And, and really I had gone up to visit his church in 1998 when we were on, I was on a sabbatical leave and it was one of the largest churches in the country at the time. And, and uh, just to, yeah, I'd read his book, one of his books, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, Friendship evangelism, maybe, or something conspiracy like that. of kindness. I bet that's it. Conspiracy, conspiracy of kindness. kindness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a great book and just such a great picture of, you know, if, if Christians actually live that way, it, 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 it would it would just fundamentally change our country if Christians were practicing that conspiracy of kindness mm-hmm. and not and not from any motive other than just to be kind. Right. We're uh, you know not this isn't to win you to Jesus. This is this is to just live what Jesus taught us to live. And we've been uh, we're working right now on a campaign at Church of the Resurrection that we want to give away to other churches. And actually, I'm working with uh, our team plus um, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, and Jack Danforth, former ambassador to the UN, Episcopal priest, um, and uh, and also uh, Matt Malone, who is he's the editor in chief and publisher of America Magazine. He's a Jesuit priest, and so we've been working together on how do we how do we mobilize the church to actually pursue kindness, especially in the light of our political polarization? Right. Maybe the church has a unique role to play in trying to bring people together. And so we're looking at, you know, this last year we did this campaign called love your neighbor, which was just a resurrection campaign, but we're going to be looking, or actually that was in, uh, it was in 2000, 1990, 19, or excuse me, 2019 and 2020. But in 2022, as the elections are heating up again, we're going to be having sort of love your neighbor 2.0, which will be focused on kindness and the, and because kindness is what love looks like lived out. It's a, it I is, love that. yeah. Yeah. Well, let me know if I can help in any way. I, I love that's, that's been my heart from day one. Steve and I became friends. John Wimber asked us to be on a, on a national evangelism committee together and mm-hmm. way back in the early nineties. And we bonded around this kind of stuff and uh, we're still in contact. You know, he's been, been with me through my, this dark, these dark days that I've gone through. So that's awesome. Steve, love Steve. Well, Hey, um, so I'm, so it's interesting when I started the church in 1990 um, and you were starting your church, we were both focused on wanting to reach people who are outside the church, you know, irreligious, nominally religious people. And uh, that was my heart. That was your heart. Um, I remember when I came to Kansas city uh, and I was trying to figure out, uh, you know, I moved back to Kansas. So I, when I graduated from high school, I lived in Texas for eight years and I lived in Virginia for three years and I moved back, started uh, vineyard in 1990. I was looking for all the churches. I was looking for some mentors. So I literally did research on a bunch of the churches that were Protestant churches across denominational lines that had a pastor who had been there. Let's say, I can't remember the 15 or 20 years, maybe whose churches had been, you know, reaching people for Christ who had a relatively stable staff and who had a, just a, a good solid growth record. Right. So if you, if you put those statistics into, uh, you know, and you start trying to find churches that have the same senior pastor for 15 or 20 years, who's been growing and, you know, dynamically reaching their community. It really gets to be a small number of churches. I mean, and you think of, I don't know how many thousands of churches there are in Kansas city, yep. but when you start applying those, those little factors to, to the churches, it ended up being a pretty small stack of people. Yep. And I remember I called every one of those pastors asking if they would meet with me uh, to see if any of them would just be mentors to me. Right. And so I remember like Ted Nissen at colonial mm-hmm. Prez. Sure. Um, and that was kind of a, an easy one because my mother-in-law might had, had set him and him up with Linda Nissen 
Mm. And this was one of my mother-in-law's best friends. And mm. she's, she set him up with, anyway. And then, uh, so Ted was there. I remember Charles Briscoe and I connected. I'm, I'm sure you know all these people as well. Sure. Um, Vernon Armitage in the yep. Northland. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember uh, George Westlake. Yep. And uh, so there were several and all of them were so gracious, you know, to, so as my church grew, I remember when pastors would reach out to me, I always made time for them. Yeah. And uh, so you think about like you, you're, you're still going, you're 31 years into this now. Yep. And you're still going. Uh, I made it 28 years. <laughs> and That's even that, terrible. even that like goes against the grain, right? Totally goes against the grain. Yeah. So think, so I want to kind of jump into this part about where we talk about some of the challenges of Paris. Cause we had dinner a couple of weeks ago and I think you, you made a comment to me. It says, you know, pa- pastoring a mega church can be, I can't remember the words you use, maybe like dangerous to the soul or can be hazardous right. to the, something along those yeah, lines. Like right. And I don't know if this, you might have the, a better updated statistic, but I think the average pastor in America stays at their church less than three years. If I'm, Something like Correct. that. Yeah. Less than three years. I think seminary graduates, once you hit the 10 year mark, most of them, more than half of them are out of the ministry. Yeah. Um, so I know there's a lot of professions in America that have high burnout rates. So some of my audiences out there, I mean, people work in and they get burned out and they just get depleted and, ah, but they need a paycheck or whatever. I don't, you know, yep. But I mean, it could be, I've heard the social, you know, social workers, high burnout, social workers, nurses, any in the helping professions, when you're in the helping professions, yeah. a lot of high burnout there. Some lawyer, I've heard lawyers have pretty, you know, law school graduates end up, you know, a lot of them don't stick with it. Um, but, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, the challenges of, of why is, why is being a megachurch pastor dangerous? Are potentially dangerous to a yeah. person's soul. Well, and I think it's probably it's probably not just being a megachurch pastor. Uh, the megachurch part can add dimensions to this. You know, it, it adds. You know, you have power. You're, so on the flip on the negative side, there's there's power. There's the uh, potential for uh, you to believe you're above the law. You you can begin to believe that you that these people are actually coming because of you which is, uh, you know, you have plenty of people who will tell you that, oh, you know what, I, I, I'm here because of you, Pastor. You're the, you're the one, you're the reason. And, and if you actually let yourself believe that, you actually start to think, hey, I'm, I'm really something. Look at this, look at all these people. And, and no matter what size church you are, dynamic churches, they're highly dependent upon their pastors. So we often look at mega churches and say the weakness of the mega church is its dependency on its pastor. I don't care what size church you're at. If you're at a church of a hundred a Sunday and it's growing and, and things are really happening, there's probably a pastor there that people love and they feel connected to. And so the same thing happens just on a much larger scale in a mega church. And, uh, and so part of what you've got to do, no matter, and this is true in almost any helping or any profession is if, if you start to believe, you know, you start to really think inside, Hey, this, look at me, look what I've done. And, and the beautiful thing about the gospels is it's so the opposite of that. It's like, you know, Jesus tells us the ones who want to be great are going to be your servants, you know? And so, um, but I think that's, I think that's one of the dangers to the soul is that you've got this organization and, and people want to know what does pastor Fred think? What does pastor Adam think? What's their, you know, and, and so somewhere in there making sure that you are, that you are, continually reminding yourself that you're lucky that you got to do this, that God, it's God. That's if there's something amazing that happens, God was the, is the reason why it happened. So I would say that's one. And that, that ties into, if you think of the seven, seven deadly sins, pride is one of the, you know, is, is actually considered the most dangerous of them. Um, so I think, I think we see that sometimes. I think uh, that's on the negative side. I think on the other side, when you're, when you are giving yourself, so you don't build a mega church without giving, putting 60 hours a week, 70 hours a weekend. You're not the one who's building it, but here's what I found. This may not be true for everybody. Maybe more gifted people can do this easier and better. But I found that every time 
you know, if I could put in a few more hours, there'd be that many more people who would be reached. There'd be that many more programs we could offer. I could, you know, if I could spend a little more time on every sermon, it'd be that much better sermon, you know? And, and so I found myself working for most, for I'd say the first 20 years, average 65 hours a week, probably maybe more. Um, which means you've got to figure out how do you do family and, and have 65 hours a week? How do you, how do you take care of your kids? How do you, how can you be a good dad? You know? And so I tried to balance all those things by just not sleeping and I know <laughs> not much of a sleeper, you know, but I, I thought, okay, if I can just, if I can live on four to five hours a night of sleep, <clears throat> then I can be there for dinner with the kids and I can go meet them at lunch in elementary school and push them on the swing set while I hurry back to the office. And I can be there for half their soccer game in a suit and tie while I'm going to do a wedding right at the end of the soccer game. And, you know, I can write books and I can do all these things. And, and so you're doing all this stuff. And if you're doing all of that and you're pouring yourself into people and you're caring for them and you're, you know, what you're going to find is if you're not replenishing your soul, then you find your idea banks dry up. You find, you know, like right now I'm on sabbatical leave. I get a sabbatical once every six or seven years. That's basically 10 weeks. And it's during those times I write, but it's also during those times that I'm reading. It's during those times I'm taking, last night I took an hour and 10 minute walk. And, you know, I spend that time praying and, and often I'll have my pocket, pocket testament with me. And I'm, you know, if you see me down the road, I'm walking with my Bible. You know, it's a pretty stupid thing to do because you're not paying attention where you're walking. But I mean, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, and, and so I come, I come back from that hour and 10 minute walk and I feel renewed. I feel energized, you know, and, but a lot of times when you're working 65 hours a week, you don't have time to do that. Then you don't take your vacations Then you don't take your day off. And then, and then, you know, for most of my ministry, you know, it was one day off a week. Uh, and still it's maybe a day and a half, but it was. And so I think you can easily find yourself emotionally burned out, physically burned out, uh, spiritually burned out. You're not, you're not doing the things that help you renew. And this is where I think even, you know, like, I take a, you know, for years, I took a week just for sermon reading and research and planning, you know, to a week away to a retreat center. And I, I started trying to teach business guys this, like you would be a better business person if you take a week away by yourself somewhere in silence and retreat and you'd pray and walk and think and take the stuff you want to read that you don't have time to read during the week. And you'd come back with, you know, with dreams again, because I think we run out of dreams. I, you know, every sabbatical leave, I, I leave and I come back with my idea banks renewed and recharged and, and uh, my soul, you know, renewed. And so I, you know, I think all of those are factors in it. And then, and then I think, I'm sorry to be doing all this talking. I'm going to shut up and let you respond. But I think also, you know, the line of work we're in, there's no shortage of critics. There's no, and this last year in particular during uh, you know, the, the election season, uh, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, COVID, um, you know, there were several other pieces to this in the United Methodist Church's divisions over, over homosexuality and, and how we'll be in ministry with LGBTQ people. There was just no, no matter where, where you turned or what you said, there was somebody who was mad. Uh, there were people who were mad because we weren't having church. There were people who were mad that we were talking about having church services in person. There were people who said, we'd only come to church if you don't make us wear masks. And there are other people who are like, we're only coming to church if you make people wear masks, you know? And yes. then, well, you know, you're, I can tell that you're, you know, you're against President Trump and, uh, or, you know, well, why aren't you speaking out more against President Trump? And uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, well, no, it's all lives matter. Well, no, it's Black Lives Matter. Well, and so no matter where you went, if you were a preacher trying to speak <clears throat> to your culture, you know, to what's going on in the world and apply the gospel to it, you're going to have people who are mad and leaving the church. Yeah. And after 31 years of doing this at Resurrection, you know, it doesn't affect me as much as it once did. But I will tell you that that it still bugs me. It still is like ugh, when I hear another family left the church over something. Mm -hmm. And you know, for every one that's leaving, we have another one that comes in. And they're like, this is the very church I was looking for. You know, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> but but you but you feel the weight of that. And so when you get that kind of criticism, you know, uh, you can easily feel like you know, or, or criticism over how, you know, how you led or what you're doing. And it's easy to go, I just don't need this. I'm, this isn't fun anymore. And, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, at least those are some of the things that in my mind go into, um, you know, into burnout. Yeah. Um, I think that's true in any size church and any pastor uh, this last year in the United Methodist church, I think I heard this for the Southern Baptist too, that there were more pastors chose to leave the ministry and or quit at in the last year as a percentage than maybe any year that they've, that, 
you know, people have been monitoring this because of the amount of conflict in our society and mm-hmm. uh, what that felt like. Because pastors are people who they want to be liked. They're people, people like, you mm-hmm. know, some and, and half half the pastors are introverts. Yeah. So people are surprised by that, that pastors are introverts, but they in, are drawn to the spiritual life, the interior life. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, they're in a people job and they, you know, they want to be liked. And yeah. And, and you tend to hear from the people who are unhappy and you don't hear from the people who are happy. And so, right. So I think all of those play some role. In, yeah, in, definitely. Right. You know, and I, I've pulled up my journal from the early 2016. This was before I had my crisis and went to rehab and got out of ministry and all that. Um, but I was writing down, so I was trying to deal with all this stuff. I wrote down all the issues I was struggling with, you know, and, I was going to a counselor work on those, but it's like, I, I'm, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert, even though I can do both. Right. I can do both really easy, but I do, I do have the, I do get a lot of the anxiety when I'm getting ready to speak in front of a large crowd. People can't tell it. As soon as I start speaking, I feel like God takes over or something like that. But um, the guilt component, it's, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but managing people's expectations Yep. always feel like you're disappointing people. The rejection that comes from what you were talking about. Um, I, I always told people, you know, if you have several thousand people that are coming, it just means that like 20 or 30,000 people left. You know I mean? It's like way more people leave than stay. Right. And so the rejection factor is massive. You know, think about how many people have left church of the resurrection or left my, you know, it's yeah. thousands, 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 you know, you all, you know, put people together and work together. You always have conflict to manage crucial, crucial conversations to have all of that stuff. Yeah. Money is always, you know, talking about money at, you know, raising money, asking, you know, those things work, campaign, another yeah. workload. And then you're supposed to have this model marriage, model family, model kids. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, so, uh, and then I was an insomniac. Like I wasn't even sleeping four or five hours a night. Yep. I was sleeping two or three. So, but I say all that and you know, my marriage was, you know, not on good solid ground really ever. And so you throw all of that together and the guys that, uh, make it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years are actually the exception, you know? Yeah. And so uh, I, I'm praying for you and cheering you on. I want you to know that. And uh, I've greatly, greatly appreciated your leadership and uh, the way you've served our city. It's beautiful and I love it and I appreciate it. So, um, so, and I'm, and I, you know, what would, what would you say to people out there who are listening to that? And like, they're going, I'm not a pastor, but I can relate to some of these burnout factors, especially after COVID and all the things you just reeled off in the last you know, 2020 and into 2021. I think there's a lot of people who are going to be, who are and will be struggling, you know, speak to the people and give them some, give them some practical ways to, to deal with this and kind of close this out maybe with some good thoughts that way. I will. But first of all, I want to say to you, Fred, um, you know, I was thinking about this after we had dinner the other day and just thinking about, the fact that God is not, you know, I love the fact you're doing this podcast. You're starting some other things up because God is not finished with you yet. And the crises that we have and the moments where we, where we walk through, where it seems like everything's coming apart, that those end up being, when we continue to trust in God, those end up being the pivotal moments that, that God uses, God rebuilds us and puts us back together again. God is the master of the redemption story and the God of the second and third and fifth chance. And I love the fact that, you know, we're all broken. We all end up, we all end up crashing at times. You know, you made it a lot longer than most people do at 28 years. And you did it when things weren't going great, you know, in your marriage and other things. I mean, you know, but you did it. You kept getting up and showing up and doing everything you could. And on three hours of sleep, I don't know how you did it. Not, I don't know how you did it all of the years that you did. But I know this, that I think your heart and your gifts and your in who you are is treasured by God. And I think that God has, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out right now, okay, what are, what are you going to do with this mess? God, how do you put all this back together again? But I think God is doing that in you. And you, you know, we talk about the wounded healer, you know, and that I think ends up being a great metaphor for, you know, who you are and where you are and how God, 
people tune into your podcast and other things is a it's like it's so it's somehow knowing that the person i'm listening to knows a lot and has a you know a lot of experience but they also know what it's like to be broken and know what it's like to and to be lifted out of the pit and i think that's you know, and wisdom is what is knowledge we gain through lived experience. And the, and the greatest wisdom comes through the hardest things in life. So that's, that's where I see you. And I just want to say, I'm, uh, you know, just grateful that you're putting one foot in front of the other and not giving up. And God, I know is using you and will continue to do that in ways that will surprise you in the years ahead. I'm confident. And I well, would say, thank you. Yeah, that's my hope. Uh, you know, and it, Man, I still have dark days uh, where, you know, I have to battle uh, for that hope. I really have had to battle for it. But, yeah, that's my hope, and that's what I'm going for. So uh, thank you. Well, there's, no way you there's no way you can't still have dark days. You're not, you're not out, of a, no. out of, you know, you're still in the middle of all this. Right. But you've, you've made a turn, right. though, and the turn you've made is, is pretty dramatic. And, you know, I think about, again, th- this is – Scripture, a lot of times people read scripture and they assume that they don't read scripture. They assume that the Bible teaches this Pollyanna view of life that that if you believe in God, everything's going to be great. And, you know, God's promising nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. And it's like anybody tells me that I'm like, you've never read the Bible, have you? Because the Bible's larger the story of the of the brokenness and mess and pain in, in life. And, you know, whether it's the, you know, the Israelites enslaved or Joseph, you know, who's who ends up, you know, being tossed in the dungeon from Potiphar or or the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian, you know, destruction of the Northern Kingdom, the Babylonian exile took Jesus crucified and the disciples being put to death. I mean, it's just, it's, it is not the story of how everything's great. It's the story of, you know, lamentations where the writer is looking at the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem and saying, my, my soul is like wormwood and gall, but this I know, and therefore I have hope the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. Right. His mercy never comes to an end. It's new every morning. I mean, I'm, I'm choosing to believe that even though I don't feel that right now, yeah. which is what faith is. faith is. Faith is believing that the future in some way, because of God in some way will be, will be more meaningful and be, or in, in some meaningful way, be better than, than the past. Yeah. I, it may not be in every way, but in some ways it'll be more, it'll be more meaningful than, and mm-hmm. better than the past. That's the, that's what we believe. That's yeah. what we hope for. That's right where I'm at. That Lamentations 3, 22, 23, you just quoted um, is exactly what I'm, where I'm at and what I'm hanging on to, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's what I'd say to you asked, you know, what would I yeah. say? To the, yeah. What so, would we say as so, we kind of close this out? Yeah. It's, 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 this has been a hard year and there's going to be a lot of PTSD in response to this. And, you know, we're emerging from something. So there's excitement like at new beginnings. And at the same time, there are people still unemployed and people's businesses that have been lost and people who are burned out and worn out, especially in the helping professions. And that's not over with it. The other day I talked to a counselor who said that, uh, that the therapists she knows are all way more busy than they've ever been, that there are more people coming to therapy now than they've been during COVID as people are trying to put their lives back together again. And so, you know, part of that is, you know, part of that I think is, is being able to say, if you're a person of faith, being able to say, you know, God, what can you do with this? What, what can you, and will you do with this? And I'm going to continue to trust that, uh, that you're with me. I'm going to continue to trust that you have the capacity, that in your providence, you have the capacity to take the challenges and the hard things in life and to force something good to come from them. I love how Dr. King talked about, you know, God's capacity to bend or wring from evil, something good. Mm. And that this is how God works in our lives and in our world. And, uh, you know, we, we quote it as a sort of, you know, it's almost trite and cliche, but you know, uh, the idea in Romans eight twenty eight of, you know, of all in all things, God works together. Nothing God causes all things, but in all things, God works together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for those who are, trusting him he has the capacity to bring good from suffering and if you look back on your life and every one of us if we look back on our lives the most painful and hard things in my life are all the things that shaped me in ways that i'm grateful for today but i couldn't see it at the time all i could see was the pain and i i think we have to trust that god is working in you god didn't cause this but whatever it is your will this is an opportunity for God to work and to bring beauty from ashes. I mean, this again, goes back to Isaiah. He gives yeah. us beauty for ashes and, you know, joy for sorrow and, and, you know, all of that, that we might become oaks of righteousness. And I think somewhere in there, 
works. And I count on that. So we say a lot around resurrection, you know, Victor, I think first said this, but you know, the worst thing is never the last thing. That's what Easter says. Worst thing is never the last thing. And there's always hope. And sometimes you just keep saying that to yourself, even though you don't really believe it. One day you go, Hey, you know what? It is true. The worst thing is never the last thing. Yes. Yeah. That redemptive arc of, uh, you know, uh, creation, uh, the incarnation, uh, this, you know, how Jesus models entering into suffering, and bearing it, redeeming it. You know, that's my hope. That's what yeah. I'm clinging to. So, uh, that's a great model. Yeah. You think about the fact that the single most, the, the, the thing that most shaped me was the, darkest moment of Jesus life. Yeah. She prayed that would take away from him mm-hmm. crucified. And it's on a cross that the world is going to be changed, you know, through, mm-hmm. through his experience of the crucifixion and the resurrection, yeah. right? That there's a resurrection after the crucifixion. Yeah. And I know that's true for, that's the for you Brad, and for many others, for all of yeah. us. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for uh, joining us on our podcast, spirituality adventures. Uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Appreciate it. Thank and, you so uh, much for, for having me. I, I, again, appreciate you so much and look forward to uh, listening to future episodes of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in today and uh, God bless you today. All right. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.